Well, hello, church. I'm so glad that you've joined us today to worship together uh, as we come together another week where we remain under quarantine. And so we continue to deliver these messages online and still have our in-person service Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. at the Naples Grand Resort and Hotel. So let's ask God to bless this service as we come together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the commitment of our people to continue to gather together, even as we watch these videos, Lord, that you have given us the grace to make. And so we ask you, Father, today to bless this message. Let it be your message inspired by the Holy Spirit for the truth of what you want for us today. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We have been in the middle of a sermon series entitled Understanding the Unseen World Around Us. Uh, and this is a continuing part of that. This is part two, as we continue to discuss Satan and the demons. And today we will also discuss hell. And so one of the things that we, we need to understand is how Satan works and how we give ourselves uh, opportunities for him to work within us. And we need to be aware of this. And so if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul speaks in this issue uh, very eloquently. And he says there, If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. I love that. We are not unaware of the schemes of Satan. And so one of the schemes of Satan is to prompt you not to forgive, to have continuing resentment in your heart. And resentment after a while uh, develops into hatred. And this is exactly how Satan attacks. He uses these feelings that we have. He works on your mind and on your thoughts and then in your heart. And so what happens? As this begins to blossom in your heart, you don't forgive. It develops into anger and then ultimately into hatred. Uh, and so what he seeks to do, uh, he seeks to divide, to divert, to deny, to mislead, and to destroy. Uh, in every possible way. And so, as I said before, it's not that he thinks you're going to worship him, but his desire is that he pulls you outside of the circle of God. He takes you away from the cross. He takes you away from following Christ and begins to put you in a position of re rebellion. And so here's one of the things that we need to focus on, and that is this, that uh, even though we would agree on most of these issues, we fail to follow through in understanding them in our everyday living. Uh, and what happens is, is that in our relationships with others, when people hurt us or harm us or do hurtful things to us or are not truthful to us, we effectively go back at the individual. We harbor resentment to the individual when in fact we need to understand that the very activity that has come against us has been inspired by Satan. Evil comes from Satan. Evil that comes against you, even though it may come through a human agent, comes through Satan. We need to understand that. He is the father of all evil, all darkness. And so we need to understand this in our Christian walk. And so we will encounter 
these effects of his evil activity every single day. And what are these effects? Well, these effects include deceit, depression, fear, mistrust, split relationships, and ultimately hatred. And so every one of us can focus on the fact that we've all experienced every one of these issues in our life. And I will submit to you that Satan is the father of these issues, even as he uses human relationships. And so Satan's efforts are set on terrorizing us and making us effectively unstable and weak in the ministry that God has called us to. He wants us to become worthless for the cause of Christ. Uh, he wants you basically to say, I can do my own thing. I can set my own way. I, I will lead my own life. I will, I will, I will in so many ways. And what happens when you say I will? You forget that you are bound to the cross of Christ. You forget that you are submitting to the throne of God because you effectively become the Lord of your own life. And that's exactly what he wants you to do. And so we have the spiritual authority through Jesus Christ to triumph over this. We have the authority through God uh, to sustain an attack against him and, and to defend against him. And what we need to remember is in order to do that, we need to ask God to fill our hearts with his will. We need to bow in submission to the throne of God. And as we do that, it's quite clear that Satan has only limited authority. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. Only God the Father and Jesus Christ are. He has very limited authority. And I want you to turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, on this very issue. Actually, we'll start with verse 9. In, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Notice that. In him, Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And I love that last verse, which focuses on the very power of the cross and the power of Jesus Christ. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's the nature of what God has given us and why we are certain that we can overcome these attacks uh, and these false representations and this hatred that is launched against us, even through human agencies. And so we need to understand that, that it is the blood of Christ that powers us through these battles that we fight. Now, what comforts us as believers 
is that when evil knocks at our front door, uh, threatening our family and our relationships and our careers and our hopes, as it inevitably will, we may not be touched without God's permission. And that's important. This is what separates those uh, from those people that are not a part of the family of God uh, because God is protecting us. Look, if you would, at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. We'll start with 24. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And so you see the responsibility that we have as Christians to reach out to those who are currently entrapped by Satan, who don't recognize how he lives, to treat them with love and kindness and mercy so that through us they see the impact of the Holy Spirit and that that impact begins to unfold to them and that they begin to have the darkness lifted off their eyes to recognize that they are in fact entrapped by Satan. And this is our, our role. This is what God wants us to do. And so I want to begin to focus now on hell, that real place, because we've talked about Satan, we've talked about the demons, but we need now to talk about a place that much of the world does not believe exists. And so we know, we know from scripture that hell has been reserved for Satan and his demons, along with those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we'll speak about that later. But make no mistake, and this is important, hell is a real place. The Bible is very clear about this. Real people will be made silent in darkness. That's 1 Samuel chapter 2. Real people will be cast into outer darkness. That's cited in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. Real people will wail and gnash their teeth. That's Matthew 13, verse 42. Real people will have no rest day or night. That's Revelation 14, verse 11. And sadly, and this is the sad part, most real people do not believe any of what I just said. Uh, and I can cite another poll, a recent poll by Barna, that reveals, and listen to this fact, 71% of North Americans, now we're not talking about Christians or Bible believers, but 71% of North Americans believe that there is a literal place called hell. But only one half of 1%, one half of 1% believes that they will actually go there. That's amazing because many of these people have never set foot in church. They, don't, they have never professed to believe in Jesus Christ. Many of them do not even really believe that, that, that there is God the creator. Uh, and yet, despite all of those facts, uh, most of them, most of them believe uh, that, that they will not go there, that only one half of 1%. Now, you're going to encounter, as, as you begin to speak to people about this concept, and this is important, 
because I do believe as part of expressing our faith in Jesus Christ and doing what God has called us to do for the lost world, we have to be able to be in a position to discuss these kind of facts. We are empowered to discuss the whole truth of the gospel. And hell is part of the whole truth of the gospel. We would be remiss if we didn't discuss this. And so that's why I'm bringing this up in my sermon series. And so you're going to come up with the fact, generally speaking, that, that there are really three factors that people will raise with you as they object to hell, as they object to the philosophy and thinking of hell. The first thing you're going to hear is that good people, good, moral, kind people, even though they don't know Jesus and don't acknowledge Jesus, those good and moral people who are kind and generous uh, will not go to hell, will not go to hell. How can such good people can be consigned to hell? How can that be? Surely God will give them a pass. Now, that's human philosophy 101. There's no basis for that thinking other than somebody imagining it. Uh, and, and we know the Bible is very clear about it. That's not true. It doesn't matter how good or kind or moral you are. We're all sinners. And as sinners, uh, we are bound to hell unless we accept Jesus Christ our, as our Lord and Savior. Plain and simple. All right? This, this is just another way of saying there's a thousand ways to God. No, they're not. Okay? No, they're not. That's not my opinion. That's the Bible. No, they're not. Then there are those people that you will come across who object to the idea of hell uh, on the premise of, and I would put it this way, what of that poor woman uh, in Africa sitting in a hut who has never heard of Jesus, never owned a Bible, and never set foot in church? How can that woman be consigned to hell? What kind of God do you have that he would allow that. Well, that sounds on its face like a pretty uh, persuasive argument. But again, the Bible speaks at length about this. And if you have your Bibles, uh, I want you to turn to Romans 1, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, because what you will find there is that God, uh, through Paul, has made it very clear that even those people who sit there without ever having heard of Jesus or ever having seen a Bible are still responsible because God has made his handiwork clear as to who he is. Turn now to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what made me known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Very clearly. God's powers, his divine nature, everything that he has st stands for has been made clear to man through what in fact he has made, meaning nature, through the skies, 
through the sun, through the moon, through the stars. It's all there. And as you sit there in the middle of Africa without any Bible, you look up and your heart is touched and you recognize that there is a God. And I need to be connected to that God. And God does that specifically, specifically so that man can be saved and recognize that there is a higher authority. Uh, and, and so effectively that woman in Africa would say, I wanna know you, God. I wanna know who you are. I need to get close to you. And that's exactly how God has designed it and God has created us. And in fact, uh, there's a poignant verse in John chapter one, verse nine, where it says about Jesus Christ, he is the true light that gives light to every man that was coming into the world. I want you to focus on that. He is the true light that gives light to every man that was coming into the world. Meaning what? That as every man comes into the world, there is in his heart a beacon that God lights. And that beacon is Jesus Christ. And so there is this urgency, this understanding that Christ is the light in that person's heart. And so even though they may not know who Christ is, that very light lightens their heart and focuses them on the fact that they need a God and they need a savior. God has made it very clear. Our God is a loving God. He would never, ever consign someone to hell without giving them every opportunity. And think about the fact of how Jesus Christ, his son, would be sent to this world to die on a cross for us. Why would he do that if in fact there were not a hell that we would go to if we didn't accept him? And so some, some people ultimately then just find the concept of hell just harsh and unfair. These are the humanists. These people merely prefer a gospel that they have de de defined to accommodate what they deem is a better way. They deny hell altogether or put the, forth the idea that nobody goes there. And that's Satan. He wants you to think that. He wants you to have the idea that nobody would ever go to a place like that. Why do you think that? And he wants you to be focused on the fact that God would not do that. But let me say this, that God only designed this place for Satan and his demons. He didn't design it for human beings. He gave human beings a life preserver to take and to adopt, to free themselves from this place. And so here's the question that we as followers of Jesus need to ask and need to show to people in the world, and that is if there were no literal hell, where flesh and blood people wind up going, then why did Jesus come to this earth and die like a criminal on a cross? Why would God send his own son to die if in fact there were not a place of torment for those who did not accept him and did not believe in him? You know, the great theologian Charles Hodge uh, said it best, and I, I'm quoting him as I read this. He said, quote, the church believes the doctrine of hell because it must believe it or renounce faith in the Bible and thereby give up all the hopes founded upon its promises. In other words, I think it's pretty clear, if you believe the Bible, then you have to believe in hell. And if you do not believe in hell, well, then you might as well throw your Bible away. How can we believe in a heaven 
if the Bible teaches that there is both a heaven and a hell, yet we have determined some point that the Bible is wrong on the latter point? I mean, it's absurd, really. So to be sure, and this is the deal, uh, the entire life, death, resurrection, and mission of Jesus Christ points to the truth of, of two literal, eternal destinations for the soul. Absolutely. And the Bible teaches, and Jesus said it, that there is a hell and that unrepentant sinners will spend eternity forever separated in this place. And here's the point, which I think is really poignant, and that is that Jesus spoke of hell twice as much as he spoke of heaven. And so the subject must have been incredibly important to him or he would not have given it to us. Now, there are a number of verses that I could cite and spend hours to you on this issue, but obviously our time is limited. And so one of those verses is Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18, and this is where Peter says to, to Jesus, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ then looks at Peter and makes this statement, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now let me ask you a question. Why would Jesus refer to the gates of hell trying to prevail against the church or against the premise of the rock of Jesus Christ? When in fact, that's exactly right. That's exactly what Satan's about. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy our relationship with Christ. He wants to take our focus away from the cross. And so there it is, Christ recognized it. The gates of hell would not prevail against the rock, it would not. And so Jesus, uh, as Jesus always does, gives us a very critical uh, definition of what hell will look like. He did it in a parable, but it's interesting uh, if you would turn to your, your Bible, to Luke chapter 16, familiar with this, well known. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, the rich man and Lazarus. And this is a parable, but we have good reason to believe that this is a factual setting that Jesus is giving us. Um, and and the, one of the reasons that we can cite that as a factual basis is that it's the only parable that Jesus gave in which he named one of the people. He named Lazarus, a person. That wasn't Lazarus uh, who he raised from the dead, but it was another name. Lazarus was a, con a common name there. And so Jesus named that person. So we have every reason to believe that most likely there was a factual basis for this. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19, the story of the rich man and Lazarus that you read when you were in Sunday school. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, 
have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And beside all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he responded, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. How incredibly ironic. They will not listen even if someone rises from the dead. And guess what? Someone did rise from the dead, Jesus Christ, and, and Jesus was right. They still would not listen to him. It's amazing. So what do we know here? We learned several things from this story about hell. I think it's important to recognize. First, it's hot. It is lonely. It is tortuous. Uh, there's also mental torment being found there. Uh, and so Abraham told the, the rich man to remember his earthly life. Remember where you came and remember the selfish focus on the accumulation of things and money instead of service uh, to others. Effectively, it was you, me, me, I, I. You didn't care about anybody else. You didn't care about helping the poor or those who were in need. In essence, hell is a place of no more. And so at the outset, it should be made very clear that the rich man was consigned to hell not because of his wealth. His wealth had nothing to do with it. It was because he disregarded the needs of others. And all he was concerned about was the accumulation of wealth and possessions and his own needs. Uh, even though the beggar stood at his gate and begged, he still did not see him and did not give in to him. Uh, he did not have the love of God in his heart. All he wanted was luxury and comfort. Um, and it is also not true that Lazarus is in heaven because he was poor, all right? Being poor is not an invitation to heaven. Let's understand that. Jesus spoke about that even on the Sermon on the Mount. But rather, he trusted God for the salvation of his soul. And so notice further the portrait that Jesus painted here. He, uh, he, as to the rich man, he wore the most expensive clothing. Uh, his table was filled with which choice gourmet foods. He lived for self, catering to self-pleasures. He had no genuine love for God and no care for his fellow man. And this is a warning to us today. We live in a very nice place here, uh, so many of us. And I would say to you that God has blessed you and many of you much more than you would have ever expected. But God expects that you will be a servant and a fiduciary of the things that he gave you in your life so that you serve others. You're not here to just accumulate self things that, that make you happy. You're here to serve the people of God. You're here to serve the world. You're here to demonstrate that we have a heart the way Jesus had a heart. 
Uh, and so this would have been a shock, really, to the disciples who would have heard this story because they had been taught early on in Jewish theology that riches were a sign of God's blessing and favor. An Israelite who obeyed the Lord was promised material prosperity. How could a wealthy Jew go to Hades? That really didn't make sense because he would already be blessed by God. And effectively, Jesus had just announced a new order of things, beginning with the fact that, that uh, the reason that a man is blessed is a test of his faithfulness and stewardship. And then Jesus said that famous statement, which really echoes down through the centuries, to whom much is given of him, much will be required. If God has given you great blessings, he's given you affluence, he's given you possessions, he's given you wealth, then you have a responsibility to give it to others. You're not called just to accumulate and accumulate. You're called to reach out and demonstrate the world to the world that you have the heart of Jesus Christ. That's why we're called. That's, when, that's why God looks at us. And, and those who don't have that heart, who have not given their heart to Christ, this is where they will wind up. And so we learn here that the choices of this life determine our eternal destiny. Uh, and once death has taken place, the curtain comes down. The choice has been made. From the New Testament, we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that when an unbeliever dies, his body goes to the grave, but his soul goes to heaven. At the same time, when an unbeliever dies, we know that his body goes to the grave, but his soul goes to Hades or hell. It means, means the same phrase. For him, hell is a place of suffering and remorse. And so chapter 16 of Luke uh, closes with a solemn warning to the Pharisees and to all who would love for money that they do so at the peril of their souls. And remember this, folks, it is better to beg for bread on earth than to beg for water in hell. We couldn't make it more clear. So as followers of Jesus in today's world, we need to make the world understand that hell is real. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm giving you what the scripture says and what Jesus said. He said it numerous times. He spoke twice as much about hell as he did about heaven. So we need to let people understand that any person, any human being that winds up going to hell effectively goes as an intruder. This was a place that was prepared solely for the devil's and his angels. And if you want proof for that, see what Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 41. And, and this is again another statement by Jesus. And he said, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus couldn't be any clearer an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Humanity should not go there. I give you my son. He, I put him on the cross. 
He was crucified as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for you. I've done everything that you can possibly get so that you won't go there. I've given you the life preserver. And yet, for many of you, you will climb over the grace and love of God in order to enter hell. You will climb over the faithful prayers, continual prayers of loved ones who intercede on your behalf. And as you do that, you climb over the very sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so our statement to you today, to those who have not accepted Christ, is that you are forewarned, all right? This is a message that's given in love, not a message given in hatred. This is given to you as a warning from God through Christ. Uh, and the message is this, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. And effectively, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that's what this is about. God doesn't want you to harden your hearts. God doesn't want you to say, I can take care of my own destiny. I am the Lord of myself. Uh, I, I don't need God. I believe that there's a thousand ways to Christ. God is warning you to have a heart to listen to what he said and to accept what he said, to bow before the throne of God, to bow before the cross of Jesus Christ, and to basically accept that free gift. This is what it's about. Because God will do everything possible to keep you from going to hell. And so a hard heart uh, leads to defensiveness and pain uh, and eternity spent away from God. Jesus said it better than anybody else, as he always did. And he said it in the most simple, poignant place, as he said in John 14, verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. At every funeral service that I have been privileged to preach at, every single one, that is the one verse that I include in every funeral message because not one human being should walk away from seeing death without recognizing that they don't have to go to this dark, evil place, that God will do everything to keep them from there. And so we need to give people the whole counsel of God. If we don't tell this story, then we're guilty. We're guilty before God and not executing his plan for the gospel. And so even though it's a story that's hard to tell, it's a story that needs to tell. And I hope today you'll be inspired to share this message with others that have not accepted the gospel of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for the message that you've given us. I thank you, Father, for the present truth of what you've done. I thank you, Lord, for the commitment of our people and their responsiveness to your plan. Lord, I ask you to give us courage to give this message to people who need to hear it, Lord, to give it in an inspired way so that people will understand that there is no need to go there to this dark place, that you have done everything that you can to prevent us from going there. Lord, help us and, and raise us up as we move forward to continue to engage the lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be with our people, protect them, and continue to keep them together uh, as we grow as a church. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you, church. We love you.